Uh, greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Stacks. Uh, I'm Jay, the curator of the Stacks. And I'm Shanna, I guess the visitor? <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, co-host. I'm here. Co-host, co certainly. Co-curator? Co-curator. Uh, I don't know. I, I certainly am the curator anyways. Uh, That's for sure. <laughs> Uh, so what I, I want to start with uh, a question, uh, just a general question about uh, what is a film that is just significant to you in some way that uh, just sort of affected the way you look at uh, movies, either as entertainment or as art or just whatever, something that is just really significant to you as uh, cinema in in some sense uh and while you think about that i have some sins of omission and errors that i made last week uh that i want to go over uh first of all uh the zadoichi film that we talked about the remake uh before anyone gets to us because obviously the first episode is not up quite yet uh it is beat takeshi aka takeshi katano and not takeshi mika i had it totally backwards oh uh, so it's Beat Takeshi who wrote, directed, and starred in uh, the Zadoichi, the Blind Swordsman version. That uh, and totally makes wrote. more sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had my timeline just totally mixed up. It happens. <laughs> Uh, and what we didn't talk about last week is, uh, so we're, we're, we're sort of like physical media focused. All of these are actual discs that uh, I'm talking about. And we didn't really mention last week that what we were working with or what we were reviewing from was uh, the amazing Criterion uh, Zadoichi complete series box. Yes. Uh, and what a box it is. What a beautiful, I don't have it in front of me, but it's pretty. It's gorgeous, like just a, an amazing mural around the outside. Uh, so much, like I, it's the original release of it, so it's the big twenty-seven disc version because it has both uh, Blu-rays and DVDs. They did release a slimmer version without the DVDs later. Um, but yeah, it's it's cool. It's just a big, massive brick of a box. Uh, and and since you know we're we're sort of physical media focused, kind of want to talk a bit about special features and extras and uh, packaging uh, when it comes up. Uh, and also, of course, uh, that we forgot to mention that uh, the next film that it is replaced by uh, is obviously The Tale of Zatoichi Continues, the second film uh, in the series, which uh, is obviously a direct continuation from the first, and it's, as I recall, fairly similar in, in tone to the first. Uh, so... What do you think uh, in terms of the question I was asking? Uh, any thoughts on that now? Well, um, as one that was like significant to how I view cinema, um, this is going to sound weird. And I know that the movie is doesn't... I, really I have, have something that I, I have in mind, and I wonder if I'm right. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay. Um, all right, so I'm so the one I was gonna say is actually Fight Club because oh, okay. it was the first movie that I recall that completely subverted my expectations. Um, it's certainly uh, not something that would ever get made today, but that that's neither here nor there. 
Um, but yeah, I went in just renting a random movie and expecting like, oh, just some people fighting shirtless in a basement. That's that's all right. And then I watched it and I was like, this movie's about something. This is oh cool because I was a teenager, of course. So obviously I was like, it was the first time I thought that movies could be about something. It took it, it took me a while to get to that point. Interesting. Uh, yeah, like I I also saw Fight Club. Uh, I, I also found it to be uh, very subversive to my expectations when I originally saw it. I caught it in theater uh, with a group of friends in high school, oh. and we were like, oh, we'll just see this latest crappy action film that uh, is constantly being advertised that looks like we all thought it looked like garbage oh yeah that, that's what i thought like a crappy action film i was like yeah whatever we'll we'll all go catch that and we all watched it and was like holy shit that was actually great <laughs> mm -hmm. uh so yeah i i feel similarly towards that although uh for me my answer would be nashville uh robert altman's nashville i i don't know if if you've ever seen it or or aware of it no no i haven't heard of that one uh so it's a 1975 movie and it's just you know a, a whole bunch of different stories taking place in nashville over the course of a weekend uh just tons and tons of characters doing just a whole bunch of different things leading up to this benefit festival for uh, some weird, uh, like, I think it's a far right, uh, political campaign that's starting up and you just see this guy's truck driving around town, blaring slogans all the time. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's a really fascinating movie. And it's much the same thing as what you were saying is that, you know, I watch it and it's like, you know, movie doesn't really have to be about a story. A movie can just sort of be a mood. Okay. Uh, a movie can be a setting. A movie doesn't have to end in a place or, or have some kind of conclusion. Uh, and I'm a big fan of really elliptical cinema. I like stuff that's sort of off the beaten path that uh, plays with the form a lot. And that, that's one that really uh, opened my mind to that. Cause like I saw that probably in junior high or something and yeah, it, it just like totally changed my perceptions of movies. Uh, and uh... One that uh, kind of uh, that I saw that kind of uh, makes me feel how, how you mentioned how movies don't have to be necessarily about anything. So kind of mm. like the opposite of how I felt about Fight Club was uh, right. Boyhood. It's it's not oh, really yeah. about anything, but it's it's a journey. It really is, and and this is a, it's a movie that got a lot of backlash, and I feel is pretty heavily maligned now and and i don't think oh. it's at all fair uh i i think time will kind of come around on it but i think it's mainly that you know it's focusing on a white male and that's well. sort of not that, that's that's not so fashionable yeah. right now and i get that but i i think it's a really bold cinematic experiment in terms of just the time put into making it and like yeah the subject could have been a different person in terms of representation but it's the story that they'd been working with for an incredibly long period of time and it's a really interesting just look at uh, like multiple slices of life and i think rosanna arquette is incredible in that movie is it rosanna arquette god it's patricia been... arquette patricia arquette 
uh, yeah, she is amazing in that. She's totally awesome. Uh, so yeah, I think that's all of the opening preamble. Or are you ready to talk a bit about uh, Twelve Minkies? Yes, I am. All right, so a deadly virus has wiped out the population in 1997. Uh, I, I don't remember that happening. What about you? Um, not yet. <laughs> uh, so do you want to start uh, the, the plot synopsis, or, or where, where do you want to go with it? Um, well, 12 Monkeys was a bit of a trip, so I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to get it right. It's, it's not very linear. I do have notes. Uh, so I, I do can... too, but there I can't reach them. I didn't think to bring them to my desk. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I and can, I also uh... stopped halfway through because I was too absorbed in the movie. Okay. Well, that's good. Uh, I have uh, enough notes, and I've seen this movie a lot of times. Uh, not recently. This is the first time I've watched in maybe like a decade. This is one I saw um, on TV, probably about probably about a decade or two ago i saw it at around the same time as seven and in my mind they just completely blurred together into one movie that is mostly just seven with some bruce willis scenes in it because i didn't remember any of this they both have kind of a similar color palette and they're both very rainy and 90s and kind of down downtrodden dystopian they they do kind of feel like they both take place in a dystopian future, even though both of them are set in the 90s present for the most part. Mm-hmm. And they both have Brad Pitt. They both have Brad though Pitt. Though he does not play the same type of character. Very different. Uh, it's a very big character in this. Uh, maybe the biggest character he's ever played. I Yeah, yeah, I could see that. And it's pretty cool. Uh I mean, I, I, this is something that is sort of external to it, but this was being made right at the same time. Uh, like, during production, Brad Pitt became a superstar. Uh, uh, it was Interview with the Vampire okay, and yeah. Legends of the Fall. Both came out back-to-back uh, -back November and December of 1995 while this movie was being made. Ah, and those are like the two that made him like the big teen heartthrob in the nineties. So, oh yeah, uh, that's what he was back then too. I, I yeah. was. That was a big hunk movie. I I remember watching Legends of the Fall with uh, a female cousin of mine who was very enamored with him. That like that's how I saw that movie. I I never saw it. I I don't remember much of it because that is the only time I saw it. Uh, I, I don't recall it being really much uh, to my interest. <laughs> eh, fair enough. Uh, so uh, what we have at the start of 12 Monkeys is we have this text scrawl saying that uh, a deadly virus will wipe out or has wiped out the population in 1997. It's kind of a bold choice considering that the movie came out in 1996. They're like, next year, it's all over. Uh, this is yeah. the post-apocalypse right away. Well, you know, you know, they only needed to sell it for that summer. After that, any money <laughs> they make after that, it's just bonus. <laughs> well, it's interesting because it's really not a very commercial film. It's uh, actually not. <laughs> and 
like the studio was unhappy with it. The, that's much of the documentary that's on the disc. Uh, pretty like classic DVD era documentary, The Hamster Factor. It's a full feature length doc that they have on there. Okay. Uh, like a 90 minute documentary just going into how much the studio hated it the whole time they were making it. <laughs> really? <laughs> it tested very poorly. Uh, and And finally, like, they're just like, okay, we will put it out the way you want it because they're not seeming to be, want to relent or do another cut. Uh, and it ended up being a really big hit. That's why you don't listen to the studios. Absolutely. And it had happened with Terry Gilliam in the past. Uh, but of course, this would lead to Terry Gilliam kind of uh, never being told no. And a lot of his subsequent movies are absolute trash. Like he has some bad movies later than this. Brothers Grimm was, like, nigh unwatchable. It's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. No, I haven't seen that one. <laughs> it's just a very bad semi-comedic take on the Brothers Grimm. Oh, uh, not a recommend. <laughs> All right. Uh, so anyway, uh, we have Bruce Willis in the future as a James Cole, who we meet in a jail cell. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um... Which is more like a hammock and a chain link fence. Yeah, they're just like they live in a whole bunch of cubes uh, and they, they can be picked up by like a claw machine, right? Yeah, yeah. They just pick up prisoners. It's like, I didn't volunteer. He was voluntold. <laughs> he was voluntold. It's like, oh, you just volunteered for this thing. You'll get a pardon. Such a brave choice. It's like, great, cool. Uh, the abandoned factory location that they shot all of this opening stuff in is super cool. Yeah, I did. I was kind of wondering about that. Like, did they build a thing or is this now it's an abandoned factory? Yeah, it's an actual abandoned factory somewhere uh, here. Let me see if I can pull up the specific place. I did not think to put it in my notes. Um. But, like, I, kn I know a lot of the first stuff was shot in Baltimore. Uh, and did you notice that uh, there there was uh, uh, someone from The Wire in this? Um, 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 yeah, no, I I'm going to guess who it is. Uh, I didn't notice at the time, but it's the... Uh the patient who explains about the mental divergence, isn't it? It is indeed. Okay, uh, that is Odell Watkins from The Wire. Uh, he, he was like the state representative guy. Okay. Uh, you mean not Clay Davis? No, not Clay Davis. He was like the guy, I think a step, I, I think like the intermediary between them and Clay Davis or something. Oh, okay. Uh, I knew I, I recognized him at the time, but I, I couldn't place him. Uh, but yeah, he he is from The Wire. Oh, cool, cool. Like it, on The Wire, he's the guy in a wheelchair. Okay, he, he's the he's the political guy who's in a wheelchair. Right. Uh, and so the uh, the the prison is the Richmond Generating Station in Philadelphia. So it is an actual uh, big factory, an old power factory. Okay. Kind of cool. Mm -hmm. uh, very Terry Gilliam, a uh, future dystopia aesthetic. It looks like 
just it's all old and rusty. You got a lot of bare metal and ducts. Like uh, like they just threw it together with uh, what they had, kind of. Yeah, a very ugly tech dystopia seems to be Terry Gilliam's like main aesthetic. Like you see a lot of that in Brazil, obviously, is sort of the really big one. Uh, and Zero Theorem later has a lot of this like, kind of stuff. Okay. I I was just uh, remembering about how they were in a permanent permanent emergency situation in this underground prison thing. <laughs> that sounds so familiar. And, uh, permanent of... emergency, emergent, permanent emergency quarantine situation. Mm. Or, or almost, almost as if it were like a permanent war. Or uh, where am I going with this? I don't think I'm Forever going anywhere war. with this at all. Uh, and not, not only like, uh, or anyways, anyways. Well, and and one of the key themes of this as well is misinformation, and that you know it's a totalitarian dystopia, and the news cycle, the the chaos of the news cycle and misinformation that has made them blame someone completely incorrect for what has happened to the world. Uh, and they're working hard to persecute this person in the yes. past that has nothing to do with it, ultimately. But they were a bigger personality in the news. Uh, I, like, I, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff about this that feels interesting and prescient now. And in a lot of interesting, uh, a lot of unusual ways. Uh, have you ever seen La Jetée, the, the movie that this is uh, named after, or, or, or sorry, is uh, a, a remake of, is based upon? So one thing I noticed about this uh, underground prison thing, actually probably about the first thing I noticed, aside from how it's just hammocks and a chain link thing, fence, mm. is they're talking about the permanent emergency situation because of the plague. Yeah, that that seems kind of uh, strangely familiar. I don't know, just a little bit. You know, for, like, forever war kind of feeling to it. Yeah, like like somebody might have just made up an emergency that won't go away, so that they can just always have the power forever and not have to have it challenged. No one would do. Yeah, yeah, that's fiction. It's very much. Uh, a totalitarian tech dystopia. Uh, and it's, it's interesting that it's very much based on misinformation and uh, what they're working on and sort of the whole plot of the movie hinges upon misinformation from the news cycle, especially. Uh, because yeah. the, the who is kind of the target and who they're kind of going after throughout much of the movie uh, the the Brad Pitt character and his animal liberationist group really have ultimately very little to do with anything. Spoilers. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert. We're sort of. I mean, like <laughs> th this is not a, a linear film in in a lot of ways, and it's not sort of. I mean, it's it's a remake of the uh, French. I think it was French. Short, oh yeah, La Jetée. Uh, have you ever seen La Jetée? Are you familiar? I with have it? not. So this is called a remake of it. It's uh, I, I think they gave Chris Marker story credit for it. But uh, La Jetée is a short film, and it's like an experimental film. It's all still images, and it's about uh, this person who becomes involved in sort of a time warp and witnesses his own death. 
Uh, so the bones of that are in this, but there's a lot more built up on top of it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. There's to the point where when you mentioned that about witnessing his own death, I had actually uh, forgotten that. <laughs> that. That's how much more there is in this movie. Right. It's it's key to the character, but it it's not something that really feels as significant. Like, it's something that you can totally miss as something that actually happens in the movie. Like, it, it's not necessarily something that is where the plot hinges. It's just sort of the the emotional uh, arc of the character in a really mm -hmm. weird way. Uh, so we get Willis going into... First, the the future dystopia where he's out in the world and he's collecting samples uh, and there's like a bear and I think lions. Yeah, lion on top of a roof and there's a bear in front of him. And what does he collect? Like a, like a spider or something? Uh, that's when he goes to the past. He's, right, right. He gets, he's trying to get a spider. Uh, he, he finds the spider in the mental asylum uh, and he doesn't have anywhere to put it, so he eats it, and then immediately he yells, I'm not crazy! <laughs> yeah, so, oh, and it's all, it's all snowing up there, too, or... Is it... I think it's supposed to be wintertime, but yeah, it, it's, it's yeah. a very snowy uh, kind of... I mean, it's an abandoned Philadelphia, or Baltimore? I'm, I'm not, I think it's Philadelphia for the stuff in the past... Uh, Baltimore when they're in the insane asylum and it's Philadelphia again in like the later stuff like all, all the uh, stuff with the animal liberation group is Philadelphia right. I believe for some reason I thought it was all New York <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we get this when he goes to the past, pretty quickly he gets picked up by police and they put him in an insane asylum because uh, he believes he's from the future and he's here to save the world. Or not not even to save the no, world. Just yeah, to... he just wants to collect information. Uh, but he showed up and they sent him back too far. Mm -hmm. So he's, uh, I think, six years too early. Uh, yeah, and he it's can't 1990. Even right. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, they gave him a number to call. Right, and the, the number is uh, not hooked up yet. Well, it's hooked up yeah. to just some some family's house. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, here is, I think, where he meets... He's already asking them about this army of the 12 monkeys. And, and then they just look at him like he's crazy, and he's just like, oh yeah, right, of course, 1990. They won't be active yet. Right, because they, they haven't put up any of the spray paint or anything. Uh, the, yeah. The group well, they, doesn't they exist. Ex they don't exist. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting because, uh, you know, it's did you measure the result, or did you change the result by measuring it? Because uh, him going back in time, uh, he's, he speaks to Brad Pitt in the asylum uh, shortly. Uh, he, obviously, he, he gets uh, put in the asylum, and there we find uh, Brad Pitt as Jeffrey Goines. Uh, yeah, <laughs> very wild performance. Big. Uh, oh, just choose up scenery. Uh, I I really like his speech about how you know they uh, they can't be allowed free access to telephones because uh, their their insanity would just ooze out through the telephone lines and infect the rest of the populace. <laughs> yes, that's pretty great. 
so, and he talks to him about the 12 monkeys and uh, he hears about the virus and uh, it's his dad who created the virus. Although we don't find that out for quite a while yet. I yeah, think. yeah. Uh, but he, we do he, know that his dad is important and uh, a big show. Well, or at least he's saying that, that he or does he say, Yeah, he's just he, saying, do you know who my dad is? Yeah, he says, my dad is God. That's right. That's what right. he says. <laughs> he, he also says, do you know who my dad is or who my mm -hmm. father is? And then, uh, yeah, and Bruce Willis is uh, talking about, like, he's, he's been drugged up for basically the entirety of this film so far. Yes. Um, and he's talking about uh, he's talking about why he's here, about the army of the twelve monkeys, and it's like a virus wipe out the world. And Brad Pitt's like, "Ooh, good idea, but not yet." Right, which is setting up the misperception that uh, he's the course or he he's the cause of uh, the virus in the future. Mm hmm. Oh, it's they. And it's one of the threads that I feel works. There are some threads of this where they're trying to make us believe something that isn't true that I don't feel work quite as well. Okay. I'm curious. Well, I, I guess, I mean, I guess we can get into it. We, we don't really need to go through it completely linear is uh, just a lot of the relationship uh, between Cole and uh, Rayleigh. Uh, Madeline Stowe's character. Oh, um, the the psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot of that doesn't really work. Uh, a lot of the way she reacts to him is like I think it's well performed. I think Madeline Stowe is really great in this role, but it also feels like she's kind of papering over uh, an insufficiently written relationship with a good performance. Mm. Maybe I, I kind of actually read it like, like the character acted this way because she's kind of going crazy herself. Maybe like she definitely seems to be pretty unhinged by the end of things. Yeah, uh, and, I, and there's definitely like an overall theme in this movie of just the uncertain reality of mental illness. Uh huh. But I never really buy. And I think we're supposed to question whether or not Willis is crazy and all of it's just a hallucination. We are? Yeah, I think we are <laughs> at times because there's that part where we get the fake out. And this is kind of jumping way ahead, but there's a fake out where we hear that uh, there's a, a body found strangled and we're supposed to think that it might be Rayleigh and that Cole did it. Because it's when we see her in the trunk of the car. Oh, right. Yeah. And then, like, we, we see him slam the, like, uh, seem to attack her or something and then uh, close her in the trunk. And then he goes to invade the party at uh, the Goins house. And we hear right. on the news that there was this body discovered. And I, I think there was one of these fake outs. And, like, I, I, it just never, I never buy that he's a threat, even though that's how Stowe has to play it all the time. And I get that she kind of like, that's where her character is, but I feel at times we, the audience are kind of supposed to uh, be suspect of who he is. And I, I, it, it's never really there. I, I don't feel like they make that tension work. No. Um, yeah, I agree. I didn't even realize, like I didn't even read it as though they were trying to do that. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so clearly, yeah, that's clearly how didn't come off. Work. Yeah. Um, we we get the, this also in the asylum. Uh, as I mentioned, this is where we get the Odell Watkins from The Wire. I really like right. his, his speech. He's like, I don't really come from outer space. Like, are you divergent, my friend? I, I thought it was really interesting that they use divergent because in the 90s that was not yet really in fashion, but now that's sort of the, the common term that would be used. Yeah, well, they, we probably, whatever term they actually use in the 90s, we probably can't say it. <laughs> no, probably not. But yeah, neurodivergent is sort of the terminology they're yeah. using and they're they're kind of fighting back against the use of things like crazy and that's mm -hmm. cool i i think that was pretty interesting to see that uh the terminology was changing then but it took until the last few years for uh that to be a sort of adopted by the larger populace and not even wow. entirely yet but nope not yet out there it's interesting mm -hmm. um so the future dystopia, uh, obviously, he ends up back there again pretty shortly after he eats the spider. Uh, yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, I mean, that was a, that was a really good, that, that, was, that was a good impulse with the spider. That was, that was good uh, thinking on your feet. Uh, it didn't work, but, you know, we, we think you're really doing a great job. We're going to, just going to, you're going to, you're voluntold to go back again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great. Super. Uh, the bureaucracy, the ineffectual bureaucracy of the future dystopia is, oh a, my is a big Gilliam thing. Like, have you ever seen Brazil? <laughs> no, I haven't. Oh, man. Brazil is like Brazil is just the ultimate big future dystopia. It has Robert De Niro as this heroic plumber who will help you out even if you don't have all the right perfect paperwork. Uh, and he eventually gets literally devoured by paperwork in the film. <laughs> Great movie. It's so much fun. Nice. <laughs> uh, and th this is another like very bureaucratic future dystopia. They can't do anything right. Uh, obviously, he gets sent back to the wrong place again. He gets sent back to World War I this time. Oh, yes, yes. Which turns out to be this... Which turns out to end up being this whole thing to prove that he's not crazy, actually. Yeah, I mean, it sort of works out in that respect. Yeah, but he also gets shot and <laughs> happens to end up in the same place as his buddy. Right, and so his buddy, is that the the guy from his cell? Like, his cellmate? Who is that guy? I think I that's his cellmate. <laughs> I think it was his cellmate. When he came back, I couldn't remember who he was. And I've seen this movie maybe like a dozen times, but this is the first time in at least a decade. Yeah, I, I think that guy's supposed to be a cellmate. Okay, okay. Uh, here we have Madeline Stowe. We catch up with Madeline Stowe. It's been six years for her, even though it's only been a couple days for uh, Willis or Cole. Uh, and she is doing a speech about the Cassandra complex, uh, which is what she theorizes that Cole has that uh, he has this illness that he feels he sees the future but is powerless to avert the horrors of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, she uses uh, she uses Cole's buddy from World War One as a reference for this, right? Which is fascinating because then she finds him in the background of one of those pictures. 
the, like, <laughs> one of the ones that she already had, and it seems like maybe she might have noticed it. Cause, but well, she might have because she says at the very beginning, like back in 1990, she's like, "I know this guy from somewhere." True, true. But she doesn't know where, and that's never really elaborated on. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie with a lot of stuff that the audience is kind of supposed to interpret on their own, and I, I dig that about it. Um, uh-huh. I feel that's a, a big Terry Gilliam thing, is he kind of wants to trust his audience to go with him there and sort of uh, draw their own conclusions in a lot of ways, rather than be didactic about it. Which is really yeah, because cool. it it never tells you that. But I figured, I kind of figured that like by by nineteen ninety, she's probably already started working on this thesis or whatever. She might have already seen the photo, mm-hmm. and, and but like wouldn't have memorized the guy's face, so she wouldn't know where Bruce Willis where she saw Bruce Willis before. Right. That's my theory. Yeah. That at makes the time, sense. I actually thought. It would have something to do with the dr- the flashback dream because I couldn't remember where that took place. Right, uh, and obviously that that's him seeing his own death, but he doesn't know it yet. Yeah, um, I I really like the two performances here where we have them in the car and both of them are in tears. They have these really intense performances at the same time, but they're in totally different modes where she's like terrified. He's just blissfully happy to hear music and smell <laughs> like untainted air. Yeah. I, I kind of get the impression that the whole underground society is just prison. It seems to be like just everybody is a prisoner. And then there's a few people who run things on top. It's just this gigantic prison bureaucracy, which is a very yep. Terry Gilliam future. <laughs> Um, so they go into this rotting old theater, uh, and a couple thugs attack them uh, and he kills them or he kills one of them at least. Uh, and this is interesting. He, she says, you killed him. And he says, all I see is dead people. Kind of, uh, interesting because considering, you know, sixth sense later on, uh, Oh, Hey, (laughs) he has his, all I see is dead people line. Uh, but that I one's pretty see. cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I I didn't catch I didn't catch that, but everybody, also, yeah, just a good line too, because everybody he's seeing is already dead, so it is meaningless to him. Yeah, it's like none of you are alive in my time. Yeah, and and that that definitely uh, shows the stakes for him. It's it's subtle, like a lot mm-hmm. of this, like uh, the. The stakes for him are are huge, but they're also totally abstract because he can't save anyone. He he can just kind of make the future yeah. slightly more livable, but everybody's still in prison and run by this horrible dystopian bureaucracy. Yeah. Uh, so we catch up with Jeffrey, who has split off to this radical animal lib group, but he sold out all of his associates on TV, and he's working with his dad now, uh, who's Christopher Who- Plummer. Oh, that's right. Uh, which he's like third build or fourth build, I think. But he has like two scenes in this movie. Yeah, he, he's not in it very much. Uh, just when when they have him tied up in the van later uh, and this one scene at the party. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, there is another scene where he tells his assistant, we have to beef up security. Right. Right. And that's I think that's it. Yeah, I, I think you are right. 
Um, so we have the whole scene at the party where Cole thinks he seeded the idea uh, for Goins to release the virus. And Goins is just, or he, he's responding to all of it in cryptic ways because he's still not well. But And yeah, and he doesn't want, uh, he doesn't want this event that he's at to be ruined because it turns out he's there kind of undercover sort of yeah kind of well he's he's but we don't know to... that right yeah. totally yeah uh but it, it's it's kind of funny that you know he, he's he's still playing too coy but so cole still is is just working with this misinformation he just doesn't get what's actually happening and it doesn't help that uh brad pitt's dressed like a super villain right now He's very super villainous. Uh, yeah, with his goatee and his ponytail. And, and the his, glasses. I haven't seen this man before in my life. Dispose of him or whatever you do. <laughs> he, it's such a big performance. It's really it's so funny good. when he gets to this uh, sellout portion, or like mock sellout, that he's like doing a parody of, you know, a, a wealthy <laughs> jerk, but from the perception yeah. of this loony guy oh man great stuff <laughs> so good and meanwhile all the guards are just like yeah whatever uh so soon uh cole disappears again but we learn that he's right about the boy in the well something we haven't really mentioned there's this whole runner about a boy in a well but he knows how it uh is resolved yeah because he was a he was a kid when that was happening in real time right uh, and we, we see him as a kid in the final scenes, uh, which are yeah. sort of coming up. And then at the same time as somehow this is a, th a thing that really doesn't work for me and that I can't quite figure is that he goes back to the future and he's sent back once again. Uh -huh. And finally, when he comes back to the, the past this time, now he thinks he is insane. Well, um... He, he is like he's trying to get them to arrest him. He's like, no, I, I see the light. I do just like, I, I understand that this is all a delusion. Uh, he, he wants to be just taken in and like, no, the, all of that future stuff is fake. Well, I, I think he realizes that the future stuff is worse than, um, it is than 1996 because as he's disappearing, he's like so happy. He's like, for sure. I not sure which yeah i kind of feel like it's a combination of the two most likely yeah maybe and at the same time rayleigh has now fully bought into it because she's seen the world war one picture uh she's her realized the thing about the boy in the well and he is completely vanished so she's like oh this is all for real but she only has the clues that he gave her which are wrong so mm -hmm. she's, she g does the spray painting of the wall of the animal liberation building, which is what gives them the misinformation in the future that leads them to believe that the animal liberationists were who did it all along. It's, it's that it's mind bending. I love I, this stuff. Really I cool. Love this stuff. <laughs> I, I, I love this stuff. I love Homestuck. Yeah. Which does this kind of thing all the time. Pretty great. I, I really like that. Uh, so they they do meet up. They go to a hotel. They're accosted by a pimp. Oh yeah, right. 
Uh, and he just takes this knife and <laughs> he pulls all his own teeth out. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, because that's how they're tracking him. That's, uh, which, yeah, that's how they track you. Which sounds insane, but it happens to be true in this case. Uh, they go to a Hitchcock Film Festival, which is pretty cool. They watch a really great scene from Vertigo where they're in the Pine Barrens. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure what they were what they were watching. Yeah, uh, the the main one was Vertigo. It's a big scene in the Pine Barrens where they're uh, an interesting choice reflecting on this one. It's a, it's uh, so Vertigo is about this guy who meets this lady who looks like someone he thinks died, uh, and he starts trying to remake her as that lady. Okay. Uh, and there's this scene where they go to the Pine Barrens National Park, which is the scene in this movie where she's kind of believing she's a ghost and has this time of like, this is where I was born and this is where I died and kind of looking at it in the rings of the tree. Great scene. Right. Really, really cool stuff. Um, so at this point, this is where Jeffrey's plot is all unfolding. He's kidnapping his father. He's liberating a zoo, just having a great time. Yeah, this, this, it was never, he's got nothing to do with the virus. He's just like, I'm going to release all the animals in the zoo. That's his whole plot. Yeah, he, he, he was all about animal liberation the whole time and nothing but. Mm -hmm. uh, and the real bad guy was David Morse uh, with his uh, red ponytail. Uh, and yep. he, he's the personal assistant to Jeffrey's dad. Yes, and, he... and we also see him in an earlier scene where he comes to a book signing and makes a really sinister speech. Yeah, uh, and then... <laughs> to Madeline Stowe. She could just completely ignores him, and then the next person comes up and gives up this... starts giving this speech, which he's also ignoring, and I thought that was a nice touch because... It was good. I work like... in customer service. I ignore all the sinister speeches. <laughs> yep, you just don't want to hear it. You don't need it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Oh, he's talking about uh, 5G now. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it does kind of seem like a 5G conspiracy theory that he's spouting. Well, it turns out. Well, yeah, I mean, he was the one behind it, so he, he actually, it was real, because he was the one doing it. That's what mm -hmm. you really got to watch out for with these guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so during the film festival, the two of them are uh, making disguises for themselves because they want to just get out of the country because they're thinking like, well, to hell with this. We just can't deal with this anymore. We've given the future all the information we can give. Yeah. Uh, so he has this great wig. Uh, Madeline Stowe dyes her hair blonde. Uh, and finally, we see that they're the people that we've been seeing in Cole's dream throughout the movie. Yes. And yeah, we don't recognize them in the dream because they are wearing their disguises, but he, he recognizes, recognizes her. Himself. Right. It, I don't know if he, yeah, he, I guess he does. He recognizes himself. I think he starts to recognize himself. And when he is fully in disguise, when oh, we yeah, see that's him, when he, he knows at that point. Yeah, that he has been seeing his own death and that probably he's going to his own death. Yeah. And that he'll see himself as a child who witnesses his own death, which is kind of a mindfuck, too. There's a lot of that to this movie. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, that, that is what happened. This is not 
one of those movies where time travel can save us. Uh, his dream is fulfilled. He fails. He's killed. The world ends. It's a pretty yep. brutal ending. Uh, but I, the, 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 the studio mandated that there be a somewhat happy ending. So uh, one of his bosses from the future is on the plane next to David Morse to collect the virus. You could read it that way, or you could read it that she's from insurance to ensure that everything happens the way it's supposed to. Dun, well, dun, I, dun. I, I think it is to ensure that it happens the way it's supposed to, but also to get the virus because that's what he was supposed to do, but failed. What Willis failed to do. He's supposed to get the virus from that guy. Oh. Well, I, I just know it because they, they, they talk about it in the documentary that that was oh, kind of okay. a studio mandated thing to add. Yeah, because it could be read a number of different ways. It could be totally. read like she just arrested him or whatever, or she was behind it the whole time. Or, or it could be read that maybe she does stop him and maybe the future does turn out different. Who knows? Yeah, uh, we it's, don't know. It's supposed to be one of those endings. Like, I, there is a TV series, you know. Oh, really? There's a 12 Monkeys TV series. I have not seen any of it. It's quite recent, just like the last what couple years. What could it be about? I have no idea. But interesting that they brought it back recently. I mean, this was a really big success. It did very well. Um, like, it, it was a big critical success. It was a big financial success. Uh, Willis got a Best Supporting Actor nomination for this. Supporting Actor? I think okay. it was supporting. Yeah, kind of weird. Huh. This was his first ever on-screen death. Oh, really? The first time Willis ever died uh, in a movie. Huh. Pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, any last thoughts on 12 Monkeys before we uh, move on to uh, Ladybug Ladybug? Uh, yeah, I had completely forgotten this movie when I saw it before. I thought it was all about time travel and that stuff. It's actually a lot more about mental health and misinformation than anything else yeah uh it's it's a pretty thoughtful movie it's it's fairly intelligent uh a lot of i i find especially 90s blockbusters when you revisit them most of them feel really dumb so yeah it's refreshing to come back to one and it feels smarter than i remember it being mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and <laughs> brad pitt just man what a performance it's it's oh outstanding. it's it's like he's trying it, it it almost reminds me of like a jim carrey performance but like that kind of energy yeah it is very high wire it's it's almost slapstick for sure almost but not quite not quite uh so we were watching the arrow blu-ray of 12 monkeys uh i did watch most of the special features i kind of ran out of time but i have listened to uh, the Terry Gilliam commentary in the past. It's pretty good. He's a very curmudgeonly dude. Uh, <laughs> the the 90-minute documentary on there, The Hamster Factor, is outstanding. Kind of one of the classic uh, DVD special feature docs. It's uh, he, uh, Terry Gilliam hired a film crew to just hang around the set and document the making of it and all the squabbles with uh, the studio and the process of doing uh, screenings and all of that. And it's great. Really cool. Hmm. Cool. Uh, they, and they went on to direct the Lost in La Mancha movie about his failed Don Quixote project that actually did finally end up getting made a couple years ago, but I have not seen oh. it yet. Oh, interesting. 
Uh, so yeah, uh, Ladybug, Ladybug. Uh, I don't really have any notes on this one because, uh, you know, it's a couple weeks now. But what do you think? Where, where, where um, would you like to begin? Oh, boy. Uh, well, it's just an ordinary day at high or elementary school in somewhere. I think it's upstate New York. That's right. Yes, it's upstate New York. Um, somewhere. Mr. Feeney is teaching his English class. It's um, Mr. Feeney. Yes, it's Mr. Feeney. It really you is t- him. Yeah. Yep, um, much a much much younger Mr. Feeney. He has not uh, had to deal with oh, whoever it was, Corey. Yeah, Corey and all those guys. It's been so long since I've seen the TGIF lineup. Yeah, and um, teaching a class, and then we see the world's. I don't know why I love this kid. Uh, <laughs> uh, Miles Chapin. Kid. Uh, as I, I don't remember the name of the kid, but yeah, this kid is so so adorable. He just he, he's getting sent to the principal's office. He just walks by the cafeteria. He's like, I'm just passing through. <laughs> Gets a cookie, goes to the principal's office. He's he's like, I don't know why I'm here. Oh my god, he reminds me of like Bobby Hill, but like a little shit disturber. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, a, a more cunning Bobby Hill. <laughs> yes, I wanted him to be the protagonist of this movie, but he's not. He's not. We, we sadly don't get a whole lot of him, but he is pretty funny in the brief time we get. Uh, so the, I, I guess the plot that goes into motion pretty quickly is the yellow alarm went off in, Which, in, in the early yes. warning system. This is like the earliest version of the nuclear warning system because this is... 64 1964 yeah it's just a blinking light and a siren and this is based on a true story this happened in i think it was upstate new york and it was it was actually in i think 62 like pretty soon after the cuban missile crisis so a little bit even scarier at the time context (laughs) that i didn't have yeah so you can get why people would be especially keyed up about it there just a little bit yeah yeah uh so the thing goes off and it won't stop making a horrible horrible noise and and mr feeney is all like oh well let's just keep calling everybody call civil defense call everyone until somebody tells us that it's fake or that it's a drill because they just had their drill and yeah and it's it's i mean it it isn't an actual it's not a drill but they can't seem to get a hold of anyone who will confirm that it's not happening. Yeah, so they have to just keep going through their their drills, and then they get to a certain point where they realize, we so don't it's... have a plan after this. <laughs> so We don't actually know what to do from here on. Yeah, so they just kind of send everyone home. And like they have a few buses, but some kids don't go on the bus, so... Uh, Livia Soprano has to walk them home. And we and just have this odyssey of these kids going home with one teacher and kind of losing their minds. Yeah, yeah. She, because she's kind of losing her mind because she obviously she doesn't know what's going is, on. She doesn't have a clue either. Nobody yeah, knows. She's totally out of the loop too. And like she was, she was kind of confident at it about it when she was still at the school, but the longer she spent with the children and all of their theorizing, the more kind of shaken by it she gets. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can see by the end, she's kind of a wreck. 
Yeah. Um, and a, a bunch of the kids split off and they go to uh, hang out in someone. Like one of them has a bomb shelter. So several of them go to stay in the bomb shelter and start a new society. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were about 20 minutes away from reenacting Lord of the Flies. Yeah, they, they get pretty bloodthirsty very quickly. They won't let this one girl in and she's just like in absolute utter mortal terror. Uh-huh. I really feel for her. Her story is brutal. Her like the way oh, yeah. things end for her is rough. Yeah. Uh, spoilers. She... Uh she she goes out the punky Brewster way. She she gets in a she climbs into a refrigerator in the middle of a empty lot and that's the last we see of her. Yep. It's one of those uh, ones with the clicky shut door, so you can't open it from the inside. Yeah. Hope someone found her. Yeah, it's it's an upsetting cl- closure to the character because you know she seemed very nice. She, she, she was, was just she was just upset, she, and she was just trying to she was trying to keep everyone else together more than the teacher was. Yeah, and then she just got shit on by these kids, and I don't know why. Yeah, and the one who likes her and wanted to go help her, uh, they won't let him out. Yeah. So he he eventually, like, tells them off and, you know, uh, calls them a bunch of fascists, basically, in, in little kid ease. And he goes to find her, but he's too late and she's already sealed up in the thing and he just and screams he just at the sky. Runs right by her. Yeah, well, he runs runs right by and by just a fridge in a field to him, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, it's it's bleak, uh, and mm-hmm. like we we get a lot of vignettes of that. We we see one girl go home to her dad, who's just not having it. Like, listen, I've been listening to the radio here while I'm chopping wood, and it's been a long, hard day, and I don't want to hear any of this bullshit. So she just kind of has to go hide under her bed and feel bad about it. Yeah, yeah. And there's this uh, other kid who has to get his uh his elderly his grandmother into the basement su- his very sweet granny she's so sweet she's so nice she she's so patient with with him and uh, i i think both of them are very good like uh, there's a lot of really great kid performances in this yeah i'm not a are. fan of kid performances in movies very often but no, they're pretty they're... good in this yeah they are this this mm-hmm. one is pretty good yeah um, we have another family whose uh, whose mother is just like, okay, well, then uh, go pray to God for forgiveness. <laughs> right. Keep like, praying. Keep praying. The the rural response. Yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's it's very interesting to see the way all of them deal with it differently, and like most of them don't strongly believe it. Most of the kids do, but they can't quite conceptualize it. Yeah, they don't. Like they're sort of accepting that this is the reality, and now and like, yeah, I guess the world is ending, but they don't get the weight of it. Yeah, yeah. Like um, the whole. I think the whole point of the movie is how everybody just really wasn't prepared. Um, I, even well, though you have. Please. Even though you've got all these, uh, like you've got all your duck and cover videos, you have all this stuff. <laughs> um, like this, I, I figured that I, I wasn't around, of course, but I figured this stuff was playing on TV commercials all over the place. Like, hey, they, they taught this stuff in schools. But then when it comes time to actually do it, it's just like, go home and then Wait for what? death. Well, go I, home. I, How? We don't have infrastructure to send these children home. 
Well, I, I think even more than that, it's it's this thing of the the hugeness of nuclear war is that the the system doesn't even matter ultimately because you know you can send them all home, but if there is a nuclear bomb incoming to this town, no it one's getting matter. out of it. Yeah, it doesn't yep. matter. All all of them are dead anyways. So it's it's just this kind of cosmic comedy in a way that you know that they're all set about these little rituals of dealing with it that are just humbug they they do nothing mm -hmm. uh so yeah a very interesting movie uh i i loved it uh it it uh it it's it, it left me thinking about it for a while yeah it did it did i one thing i noticed was uh all the dead animals around yeah that was there, weird there was, yeah that squirrel because I was thinking, it's like, oh, wow, all these dead animals. Maybe there really is a nuclear... Wait, this is based on true events. If there was a nuclear attack in rural America, it, we would know about it. Right. It'd be all over history books. Mm -hmm. So is this just the normal amount of dead animals? I guess so. Like, <laughs> So this is another thing. It's 62, so this is still pretty close to... And maybe is one of the areas still where it's the leaded gasoline era. Oh. Uh, and, and this something we've talked about in the past, because uh, sort of peek behind the curtain, we're both real true crime nuts in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's the lead thesis that a lot of people, a, a lot of the violence of the 60s and 70s going into the 80s when you have the big peak in serial killers and stuff is all the lead in the air at the time. And this is still like right after that. So yeah, that yeah, could be related to that kind of thing. This is still rural, Maybe. so could still be using leaded gas at that point. I don't know. Uh, hard to say. I, <laughs> yeah, I never, th I, because I thought about it while I was watching the movie, but then I was like, wait, there's no nuclear attack. What the heck was <laughs> that all about? Maybe just it's, it's thematically just for the filmmakers to be sort of this pervasive sense of death everywhere well for one thing because it's never really remarked upon either it's just sort of part of the scenery mm -hmm. which is what led me to believe that perhaps this is the normal amount of dead animals it could be in just like some rural town where people just regularly shoot at small animals by the side of the road right actually yeah i could see a lot of these kids uh being bb gun squirrel shooters yeah, so it could just be a lot of that too. I don't. And know. then there's uh, oh, <laughs> what's his name, Unibrow that uh, that the teacher gets picked up by finally. Oh yeah, the guy on the road uh, when when she's finally like dropped all the kids off and she's just kind of wandering in a daze with one of her broken shoes. Yep, she gets picked up by this guy who. I don't want to judge a book by its cover. <laughs> he, I, I was concerned. You, you almost think like, is this going to be like the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre? <laughs> <laughs> like, is, is she going to be safe here? Is this guy, is this woman about to get taken? <laughs> yeah. But no, he's just, you know, a rural weird guy. Just, just, they, she probably knows him. Very possibly. Uh, and, you know, he, he reveals very quickly, like, well, he's been listening to the radio and they haven't said anything. But she's haunted by it because I, I think 
it's sort of the unspoken thing through all of this is that you know she's looking at it as like well i mean i guess i'm going to deliver all these kids home and what a meaningless exercise this is but i guess it's just what i'm going to do with the end of the world yeah yeah i'm <laughs> she was she's shell shocked like she oh yeah she is just she needs therapy yeah she she's completely running on empty at the end of it it's a good mm-hmm. performance oh it really is a lot of good performances. I, I I think it's a very uh, solid film that way. I also think, like, I think it's interesting. Like, we find out halfway through that there's no nuclear attack, but they just aren't able to. Uh, they aren't able to let our group of kids know. Oh yeah, I mean, how how are they going to get a hold of them? They, there's they no cell phones. There's no cell phones. Uh, probably a lot of them don't have phones. And, yeah, you know, most of them not. live on farms. So, I mean, where are they, are they going to go find those kids working their farm fields? No. Yeah, it's just days over. Go... Yeah, yeah. They uh... <laughs> so like the conflict, conflict, uh, like the threat is over, but they're still thinking it's there. And oh man, it's well, it was it's... always an imaginary threat. But yeah, but a, an imaginary threat that was also constantly real, which is. What I find really interesting about this film is that it is about that exact thing, is that even though this was just this unreal thing, it is the same constant threat that was hanging over everyone every day in that period anyways. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just like a really cool look at the nuclear angst of that period. Yeah, yeah. Um... Uh, yeah, pretty, pretty cool. I... I I actually love it. I, I would say of the two, I like Ladybug, Ladybug better. I have more to say about it, I think, than I did about 12 Monkeys. Um, I don't know what I would say I liked better. Um, they're both very good. I, I think they're yeah. both very interesting films, and they both have some interesting thoughts to say. I, I just think that uh, Ladybug, Ladybug maybe lands it better, whereas 12 Monkeys is a little bit shaky in places can agree with that yeah uh okay so uh i forgot to mention 12 monkeys is replaced in the stacks with a taste of cherry or sorry just taste of cherry taste Uh, of cherry this is an iranian film from the 90s uh it won the palm door at con uh and it's about this guy who's just driving around uh the outskirts of tehran and he's just looking for someone to kill him uh, he's already got a grave dug. He just wants someone to uh, kill him and bury him because he doesn't want to live anymore. Uh, and that's oh. forbidden, forbidden by Islam to commit Ooh. suicide. Yes. So he's just going around looking for someone to do the deed for him. Uh, great picture. I've not watched it in a good like 15 years or so, but uh, that's the next one after 12 Monkeys. Uh, All in, right. In the stack. Uh, and so we'll get to uh, my overall movements. Uh, I did watch a handful of things. Okay. Okay, so first, I watched Phobe. I, I did talk to you briefly about this. Phobe is uh, shot in the Niagara region, Ontario, for a budget of $250. <laughs> oh my goodness, okay. Uh, in the mid-90s, it's very mid-90s Canadian. Uh, all of these people look and sound and dress like my relatives, except one of them <laughs> is a space cop. Okay. A very bad mullet. Uh, there's, 
it's mostly people just kind of hanging around in wooded areas of uh, southern Ontario. Uh, sometimes there will be some laser fights. Uh, there is a lightsaber battle, which was pretty funny. Uh, it's very bad, very cheap, and uh, slow, but it's pretty funny. Like, especially <laughs> just for the very Canadian milieu of it. Like, it was very funny because of that. Like, if I were not Canadian, if I did not grow up in the 90s, it probably would be, like, 80% less fun. I What was it, I believe you said, uh, when they were, when the astronaut was about to take off? <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to head out now, eh? Uh, yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, well, I guess I'll be checking out there now. Something like that. It's great. <laughs> so perfect. Just uh, Beautiful. And, all of the line deliveries are that sort of thing. So that that definitely really elevated it for me. Uh, that is replaced by the China Syndrome, uh, which is uh, the big nuclear thriller with Jack Lemmon, Jane Fonda, and Michael Douglas, where there's uh, a flaw in a nuclear facility that they're aware of, but they're not quite dealing with it. And uh, they're worried that... You know, it's going to melt down all the way through the world and end everything. Oh, a flaw that they're not dealing with in a nuclear facility. Uh, yeah, and interestingly, this came out in 1979 prior, oh, wow. prior to Chernobyl. Uh, the same, okay, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, interestingly enough, precedes Chernobyl. Uh, very, very interesting in that respect. Uh, I've seen it before, but not in, again, many years. Uh, I also watched The Other Side of Madness, uh, which we talked a bit about last week. That's the Manson one. Uh, very, yeah, very you said, silly. <laughs> you said some uh, choices were made. Choices were made. The guy who they cast as Manson is not very Manson-y. Uh, he's got... I don't know why they cast him as Manson, because he doesn't sound like Manson. He doesn't look like Manson. They don't have him say much. Honestly, most of the time they just do a bunch of dramatic close-ups of his face looking at people to influence their minds. Oh, right, because he had, like, wicked dark powers back then. He did. He, he was an evil, evil uh, Svengali. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we get a lot of that. He has a very fake... He, he has fake eyebrows, fake beard, fake mustache. It's all very obviously just glued on him. Um, most of the movie is just a recreation of the, the Tate house murders, uh, and not, not like very violent, uh, and it's definitely considerably toned down, but more or less accurate for like the broad strokes. Okay. But like, that's the bulk of the movie. And then there's sort of like a lot of Ed Wood-esque trial footage and like cult footage hanging out at Spawn Ranch. Uh, that's just sort of bookending that section. Ah, okay. So would you say a better or worse representation of uh, of uh, Charles Manson's whole thing than uh, Once, Upon a, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Oh, oh definitely worse. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think probably Tarantino is aware of and had kind of thought of Other Side of Madness when he was doing it because some of the setup to... Uh, them going in feels a lot like what is done to start the 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 twist part of it in Once Upon a Time in uh, Hollywood. 
Which, by oh, the way, okay. did you know Quentin Tarantino did a novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that is coming out at the end of this month? Interesting. Yeah, uh, I have a copy pre-ordered. I'm really interested to read it because I love that movie. It's a good movie. Yeah. Also uh, has Brad Pitt, a uh, very has Brad character. And another really great performance, I would say. Uh, well, he won an Oscar for it, didn't he? Uh, yes, maybe. God, I don't remember. We watched that Oscars together. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but they did this. I, I don't remember. I don't know. <laughs> um, so that is replaced by Metamorphosis, uh, which is about a doctor who has created an anti-aging serum. Uh, and he makes the obvious stupid mistake of testing it on himself because he's a movie mad scientist. And uh, oh, obviously... No. Uh, terrifying changes occur. <laughs> oh, well, you do tell. It's so the sort of thing that's going to happen. Uh, I have not <laughs> seen this one. It's uh, directed oh. by George Eastman. Uh, and uh, he, he's like a guy, he's sort of a genre favorite guy. He's uh, he's the anth- anthropophagus in Anthropophagus. Okay. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen that one. I, I, it's the first half of a double feature. I got it mainly for the second feature, which is a Claudio Fragasso film. All right. Uh, who's the guy who did Troll 2? Oh, I right. All of his work. Uh, oh, gosh. That's the second feature on this disc. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also watched An Ideal Place to Kill, which is an Umberto Lenzi, uh, I guess sort of a giallo, kind of a plesioteschi. Uh, it's uh, about this British couple who go on a trip to Italy and they finance their trip by selling porno mags and nude photos of themselves, uh, which is illegal in Italy. Uh, pornography was illegal at the time. What then? How did they? Anyways, uh, so, carry on. So they're very soon outrunning a pornography charge and they're told to leave the country and then they just get accidentally involved in another movie that's already taking place that's much more serious than the one they were stuck in uh and some people get dead it's uh it's an interesting one it's very shaggy uh but you know pretty fun very breezy okay uh if you're into the whole italian uh exploitation genre cinema scene it's a pretty solid uh example of that kind of stuff uh, and that is replaced by The Vampire Lovers, which is a lesbian vampire movie. I don't oh, know. Oh, okay. It's a Hammer lesbian vampire movie. Uh, so Hammer Pictures, you know, they, they did like the Christopher Lee Dracula ones and Frankenstein and stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's their version of Carmilla, which is sort of the famous canonical lesbian vampire movie from, or lesbian vampire novel. Uh, from I think the early 20th century or late 19th century, but they I don't had lesbians back then. Uh, kind of secretly, you know, it's kind of just hidden uh, in in behind the corners. It, you could have them in literature, you couldn't have them in reality. So... Oh right, right, yeah, yeah, that <laughs> was just the strictly not allowed, I guess. Yeah, um, you just couldn't. Uh, and uh, it stars Peter Cushing, of course. I, I think as the as probably someone trying to kill the vampires, because that's usually what he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also watched Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, which is fantastic. Uh, this is, it's sort of a, it, it's a docudrama. It's it's not uh, an actual uh, 
a documentary, but it's very documentary style. And it's about the last night of a dive bar on just off the strip on Las Vegas and it's closing down. Uh, they, they've got one night left and then they're uh, shutting down. And it's also the night before the 2016 election in the U.S. Oh, boy. Okay. So That's it's just a, a bunch of really drunk losers all hanging out and kind of commiserating about this place. And uh, I don't know. It was weirdly beautiful. It's, it's very <laughs> kind of moving. I, I guess especially being that we're so deep into quarantine now. We're, you know, a year, more than a year into quarantine. Uh, just seeing a bunch of people hanging out and enjoying public space together and commiserating that way. Uh, it, it felt very moving. I, I thought it was really excellent. Cool, cool. Uh, great use of the location. Uh, you, you really get a sense of the bar and just uh, the, the way it's important to these people. And like the people all have very petty squabbles and they're... Uh, yeah, clearly this this is not a good bar, and the, these people are all sort of at the end of their rope. Uh, right, it's, it's interesting. It's it's really good. Uh, probably my favorite of all the stuff I watched in the past week. Right on, cool. Uh, and that is replaced with one, two, three, which is a classic Billy Wilder madcap comedy, uh, starring James Cagney as uh, this guy who's an advertising executive, I think, for Coca Cola. And he's trying to get some sort of marketing deal during the Cold War. And he's like racing in between the the two sides of Germany. So like he's he's like in West Berlin and I don't know, uh, having a kind of crazy madcap adventure through all of that, but trying to promote Coca-Cola. <laughs> all right. That sounds fun. It's a blast uh i have not watched it in a few years but that one is a really good time very kind of non-stop good time classic comedy says this is i think 62 61 the, a couple years earlier than uh ladybug ladybug okay. uh, and uh just uh last night i or these are two new additions to the stacks we have two new stacks and i've watched something from each of them all right uh, we've got Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace. I watched as the first film in the Severin Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee collection, uh, which is uh, uh, six, I think five movies and a Polish TV series of just really obscure Christopher Lee starring vehicles that were made in Europe outside of studios uh, in the early 60s. Oh, wow. Right. So Interesting. the first, yeah, kind of cool stuff. Uh, I had seen one of these movies before, but only in a really crappy version. So it'll be interesting to see a better version of it. Um, so the first one, Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace, I watched the other night, and it's sort of very loosely based on the Valley of Fear uh, story, but it's really more just about uh, Christopher Lee as Sherlock Holmes whining to scotland yard that moriarty is a bad guy and you got to believe me that he's a bad guy and him trying to convince them he's a bad guy <laughs> and in the end they still really don't like not much is accomplished <laughs> i'm just imagining christopher lee whining but in that christopher lee voice but moriarty is bad he's so bad well it's i can't do christopher lee it's tough uh and 
uh, it is all German language, this one, because, uh, you know, he did also speak German, uh, which is weird to, to hear him uh, speaking only German in this movie. Uh, he kind of has a higher voice speaking in German. Which is oh, interesting. interesting. Uh, but it is still definitely him speaking. I'm pretty, pretty sure it's a distinctive voice, nevertheless. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of slow. It's interesting that he plays Sherlock Holmes as a very difficult person who's unpleasant to be around. Like that that was his concept for the character. Is like this is a guy who has obvious mental problems and is a pain in the ass to be around, and uh, he would just be a huge pill. And that's how I'm going to play the character. <laughs> so it's kind of cool. Nice, uh, nice. Uh, that is replaced with Challenge the Devil. Uh, which is a movie where Christopher Lee is the devil, just wandering around Victorian England, I guess. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have not seen that one. It sounds pretty fun, though. It sure does. Uh, but yeah, I don't know much else about it. And one more here I watched just before we started because I got my new order uh, from Vinegar Syndrome. They're halfway to Black Friday thing. Uh, I'm a subscriber, so I got it's a great big box of stuff, including dinosaur pajamas. Uh, and dinosaur I watched pajamas. Dinosaur pajamas. So they did this movie, Don't Panic. Uh, f- like I, I guess a year ago now. I think it may have been the last halfway to Black Friday sale. Maybe the Black Friday sale. It's this movie about uh, some kids in Mexico, and it's uh, this guy's seventeen seventeenth birthday party, and he's wearing dino jammies, like the sort of dino jammies a seven year old would wear. Okay, <laughs> uh, but you know he's seventeen, so they're adult size, and everybody kind of is like, "Oh man, those are so great! You guys should make them and sell them." Uh, and they <laughs> did, so I I totally have a pair now. Oh, awesome! <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I I had to watch right away uh, "Champagne and Bullets," which is also known as "Road to Revenge" or "Get Even" or "Get Even." Get uh, <laughs> it's it's this vanity project by this guy named john dehart uh, and it's the vanityest of projects like this guy it's it's very clearly him doing a whole reel he tries to do shakespeare he sings he does jokes he's bad at all of it he can't act <laughs> uh, he doesn't look tough he's supposed to be this tough guy uh he's backed by wings hauser uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Wingshauser. He's like a fake Gary Busey, almost. Okay. Like he he reminds me a lot of Gary Busey in the '80s, but he's like the more low budget Gary Busey. And this this performance is like Nicolas Cage in Deadfall, where he's this guy who knows he's in a friend's vanity project, and he's just going as far as he wants with it all the time. <laughs> it's a huge performance. It's pretty fun. Nice. But yeah, it's it's a completely bizarre movie. It has no sense of how movies are actually made. Uh, <laughs> the the there's just constant music in every scene. The editing is bizarre. The camera movements are so weird. Like it's very very blocky. It it just stays in one place all the time. It has no coverage. Like it it makes Kevin Smith look like Fellini. It, it's <laughs> oh, like boy. just it's unreal. Like totally recommend i had an absolute blast watching it but it's terrible in just a really fascinating way ah one of those um so bad it's interesting so bad it's great oh Uh, excellent uh and that is replaced with uh next in the list surf 2 which is about uh some sort of uh uh 
I think it's a cola company who creates an evil cola that turns surfers into zombies. Oh, and it stars. Damn those uh, cola companies, huh? They're the worst. They're they're all over tonight. Uh, and they, uh, uh, it's it's got Eddie Deason. It's kind of like a broad satire comedy. I I think kind of in the vein of something like Wacko or uh, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's everything other than I I watched season two of One Punch Man, which we were talking about before. It's decent. I didn't love it. Nowhere near as good as the first season. The first uh, was really good. The first season was amazing. This one was pretty good. A great start, great end, a lot of treading water in the middle. Lots of filler episodes. A lot of just, he goes to a tournament and it's just him waiting at this tournament for a really long portion of the movie while other people do a lot of repetitive stuff over and over again. Oh, Which, the, the anime tournament arc. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, whatever. I, I get it, but it, it was... I, I, I also feel that, given the way that show is set up, that it was sort of meta in a way, but it it does get to be kind of tedious by the end. Hmm. Uh, all right. Sorry, go ahead. I was, I was just saying, yeah, I had heard that uh, season two wasn't as good as season one, uh, but I hadn't gotten around to watching it yet. Right. Uh, all right, so uh, time to uh, choose our next films. Ah, uh, uh, yes. What do you figure for our our main feed, main picture? There is that. So, any thoughts on any stuff in the list, or any uh, things you're considering? All right. So, what else was there? I just saw a movie called Lucky Star, and I was thinking of of an anime, which is not this movie. Definitely not this movie. This is a silent era Frank Borzage picture. Ah, ah. But a poor farm girl and a enlisted man and <laughs> silent picture. See. Ah, yes. I was actually kind of thinking. We did one time travel fucky movie uh, just now, so let's try Primer I've been wanting to see. All right. Uh, next week, then, Primer. Absolutely. I've, uh, that's also one that I have not seen. Oh, okay. Uh, I, cool. Yeah, so no, this will I, be I've, new to both of us. It, it will indeed be. Uh, this is one Excellent. that I've heard is very interesting, very cerebral. Uh, I've and, heard it's complicated as hell. And that's the way I like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and thoughts for a secondary picture uh secondary now i'll just pull up the other list or is that the other list mm-hmm. okay the one yeah go so this Please. week's uh start at phobe uh okay here we go so there's phobe there's the other side oh yeah he doesn't look like charles manson really and on the poster, he looks more like Manson than he does in the movie. <laughs> ah. A lot more. <laughs> um, let's see. So, oh my god, I'm just seeing the <laughs> get of it. <laughs> the cover <laughs> art for that. Oh, goodness. So what do we want to do here? Which one was the... Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> All good. Bloody... What was... 
So bloody nose, empty pockets. That's the one. Yeah, with the, bar. the one with the bar. Let's yeah. do that one. Alrighty. So uh, next week we will talk about uh, primer and bloody nose, empty pockets. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, good times. Uh, uh, any last closing thoughts before we go? Um, I think we've covered everything. Alrighty, cool. Uh, thanks very much, everyone, for joining us. We have a hard out tonight, so we're uh, cutting off quick. Uh, otherwise, we might have uh, stretched out the last part a little bit more. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks very much, everybody, and uh, keep watching the stacks. Bye.